Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us here on Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, so my guest on the show this week is David Bilstrom, the CEO of Kitspo. And for those of you who might not be familiar, Kitspo has undertaken a very ambitious project to bring all of their apparel manufacturing back to the United States and move the whole company from California to Old Fort, North Carolina to do it. And in doing so, established an entirely new factory and trained up a workforce that didn't have a ton of experience making apparel. And in doing so, they have not only revitalized a community that's lost a ton of manufacturing jobs over the last several decades, but have also found some very real benefits to them as a company and to their customers and to the environment because they're no longer shipping stuff around the world. And as we get into the amount of waste in the apparel industry is absolutely mind-boggling and horrifying. So this is a super cool conversation about a company that's doing some really big stuff in the apparel world and also just happens to make my current favorite mountain bike jersey, the Mullinax three-quarter sleeve Merino, which is pretty excellent. You can check out our review on the site. And in case that's not enough, Kitspo also just got together an employee group to buy the entire company as a public benefit corporation. And so David and I get into that too. And we also just talk a bunch about how they hope to be a blueprint for bringing manufacturing back to the United States and all of the benefits that can bring to all of us. So this is a really cool conversation with a company that's doing some really big stuff. So let's get right to it. Well, David, thanks for coming back on Bikes and Big Ideas. How are you today and where are you today? I'm in Old Fort, North Carolina, and I'm delighted to be back. Uh, love talking about what the people here at Kitspo are making. Um, you probably can't hear it from the room I'm in, but uh, above my head, we're making clothes and I can hear the sewing machines thrumming. And it might sound corny, but that makes my heart warm. Yeah, it's pretty cool what you guys have done with the bringing all your manufacturing back to the States, which we'll get into in a whole lot more detail here. But before we do that, last time we spoke was almost exactly two years ago now when the COVID pandemic was just really kicking off in the US. And we had you on back at episode 20 to talk about the pivot that you Kitspo made to making PPE very early on in the pandemic, just sort of dropped the uh, normal apparel line for a little bit and switched over to making face masks and face shields. And so one of the things that was most interesting about that was that this is at a point where a lot of companies were just very concerned about whether and how they would continue to be able to operate with the pandemic firing up and really getting serious. And you talked about how you were instead ramping up production and hiring more people to take on this PPE line. And so would just be very interested to hear an update on kind of how that progressed from, from that moment back in March of 2020. Well, so um, we can cap it because 22 days ago, we made a decision, the leadership here, not to make any more PPE. So if you go into the store today, there's PPE for sale and that's the stuff we have on the shelves and we're not going to make PPE again. So it was, it was exactly two years of production in the PPE business. We made 143,000 cloth face masks here in Old Fort. Um, that adds up to about $3 million worth of face masks shipped all over the United States and the world. And we're proud of that accomplishment. And, and even before we stopped, we could see some interesting things that came out of it. And one of them was I'm, I don't remember what I said in that discussion, uh, but I know what I told NPR and a bunch of other national media, which was we were in a great position to pivot because we had this brand new factory. It was only five months old. Um, our, our factory is uh, very modular. So we literally shrink wrapped all the clothes we were making. If you ordered an Icon uh, shirt in January of 2020, you probably got it in September. Because we shrink-wrapped everything, work in progress, everything, shoved it in a corner, reconfigured all the machines, and started making masks. So that's what I was talking about then. What I talk about now is 
the vertical integration of our design team, that's actually the reason why we're able to do it. And what I mean by that is there's four people in the design team. There's a designer, there's a construction specialist, there's a source material person, and there's a pattern maker. And those four people all sit in adjoining desks and almost no other brand in apparel in America has that because three of those four functions are almost always done by the factory overseas. So when when China shut down, when these overseas locations shut down from their own COVID tragedies, we had the talent in the building. So those guys had never worn a mask, much less designed one. So they got on the internet, they saw face mask patterns, and they started designing them and prototyping them. And as I recall, about 20 iterations in four days. These are 12 and 14 hour days. They're designing them, designing the pattern, cutting the pattern on our big cutter, sewing them on our industrial machines, trying them on the face, and 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 repeat. Rinse, lather, repeat. And on the fourth day, uh, they declared a winner. They took photos in our in-house photo studio, just like it was a clothing item, and put it on the internet. And 48 hours later, we had orders for 20000 So the part that, you know, as a, as a capitalist, I'm not a clothing designer. I'm not even a very good clothing wearer. Um, the part as a capitalist that got me was that demand. In 48 hours, holy crap, I've never experienced anything like that in my life. Um, and I've been in business for four decades. So that was exciting to me. But as, as time has unfolded, it was really that design capability in-house, which since then, that same team has done the same thing with clothes that used to be made in Vietnam and Hong Kong and overseas. They've taken them apart with a seam ripper. They've created a new pattern. They've cut it on our cutter. They've sewed the sample. And then they've tested it out on the trails in the Pisgah nearby. They've made sure it fits well. And then unlike a lot of... Um, well, almost all of the brands that order from overseas, they approve size medium. So in almost every brand, size medium is going to fit great. Size extra large, especially if it's the first time they made that particular item, eh, might fit, might not. So our team here, they sew every size and test every size before we bring it to market, just like they did with the masks. So there's a subtlety there. All of our masks came in sizes, just like our clothes. Anyway, that in-house design capability, I personally didn't fully appreciate until we, quote unquote, won with masks because we were the first to pivot because we didn't have to wait for offshore designers. Yeah. I mean, this is a big part of why I wanted to get you back on to talk about all of this because the last couple of years of pandemic-induced supply chain struggles have just been pretty brutal in the bike world, I think, is a lot of – and plenty of other industries as well, not certainly limited to the bike one. But th the folks listening here, I'm sure, are extremely familiar with just how hard it has been to get bi bikes and parts and – Parts. Every, anything. Yeah. New bike. It's been, right. Even little necessities, little consumables like tubes and brake pads and cables and I, just everything has been hard to come by. And – as we've been talking to with a lot of manufacturers of that stuff, it's really forced a bit of a reckoning and kind of a reconsideration of where and how they get their products made. And which I think Kitspo has laid out a very interesting blueprint for how a company can bring manufacturing that they had been doing overseas back to the U.S. and re just reimagine how a, an apparel company can operate. And I think it's a a blueprint that could potentially work for people outside of the apparel space too. So to get into that a little bit, why don't you take us through the history of, uh, well, bringing the manufacturing back to the U.S. and the move to Old Fort that went along with it, because I think it's a pretty cool story. The story is a, a little bit of a twist and turn. Uh, the company was founded in Northern California in January of 2012, so a little over 10 years ago. And the original emphasis was on really a brand that didn't exist. Stylish clothes that would last a long time because of durability and still look good for the mountain bike. And that led to some early brand decisions that we still hold today, which is the color choices are really deliberate. 
they're typically not flashy. Um, they're designed so that you can mix and match almost all the pieces. And there's a very good chance those colors will go well together because the idea is you're going to ride your bike and then ride it directly to the pub or to the meeting, get off the bike, walk in and not look ridiculous. Um, look stylish and uh, put together. So uh, that brand ethos depended upon offshore manufacturers. And that's because at that time in 2012, there really wasn't any onshore manufacturing at scale. Everyone went offshore. That was the dogma that, quote, you can't afford to not do it, unquote. So the issue with that is really that the shipping tail wags the dog. And what I mean by that is you're not going to ship an individual shirt from Vietnam. Now, my laptop comes from Shenzhen, China in its own box. Um, but that's, you know, one or $2,000. That makes sense. It doesn't make that sense for a single shirt. So that means it's going to ship in bulk. If it's going to ship in bulk, it's going to be made in bulk. And we'll come back to a second factor that makes um, uh, the sewing in bulk uh, sensical in, in one way. Uh, and that means the brand has to order at least 300. Really, they want 3,000 per color. So that's why when you see a smaller brand, you're going to see fewer color choices. And a bigger brand, not to mention names, but like Patagonia, you'll see a lot of color choices. Um, Rafa has a lot of color choices. And that's because they have the scale where they can order that minimum order quantity in that color. But the smaller brands and the medium-sized brands, they can't do that. Um, it's, it's cost prohibitive. And it's essentially Las Vegas. Is purple going to sell? Um, that, that whole issue then requires the brand to put cash down to reserve the factory space overseas months in advance. In the worst case, if you're a small brand like Kitspo, it's a year in advance. Now that ends up leading to this phenomena where when the clothes finally arrive, you want to turn the inventory into cash as soon as possible. And that's before we had the shipping costs of today. It used to be, you know, six weeks. Now we're looking at even more extended times. So not just in, not just in cycling and not just in outdoor apparel, but in all apparel, the custom is once it lands, you try to sell it at list price. You sell as much as you can that way, typically about three weeks, and then you mark it down, which leads to the second phenomenon, which is almost nobody ever pays list price for clothes. I am, I'm, I like to say I'm a buyer, not a shopper. I went to Brooks Brothers to get some new Brooks Brothers shirts for some meetings. I knew what I was going to buy. I walked in to buy. They were already on sale because I'm just a buyer. I, I wasn't trying to time my buy, but we're, we all had that experience. And there's, there's plenty of room for shopping. People, can, people never have to pay list price in the apparel industry because these brands are so eager to turn the inventory into cash. Which leads to the next problem, which is they mark it down twice and then it goes to the dumpster. And that's because by then you've taken all the profit out. It is literally worthless to you. You know you're not going to get your cash back because you've probably paid about 50% of the list price for the clothes. Maybe you've paid 40%. But once you've marked it down twice, there's no more cash left in it. And now it's a cost. And you can't afford to pay the truck to take it away. So into the dumpster it goes, which is the experts estimate somewhere between 30 and 40% of all the finished goods and apparel worldwide go to the landfill. It is one of the dirtiest in industries. And if you're a big brand, you don't show that on the P&L. You show that on the balance sheet as excess inventory. And a couple of financial periods later, that's when you write it off. So if you look at a publicly traded company that owns a brand, you're not even going to see the true profit margin because it doesn't include the landfill behavior. That gets delayed and bundled later. So we've got kind of a mess here. We, don't, we can't give the customer exactly what they want. We're sending stuff to the landfill and making the world worse. And by the way, Clothes are pretty polluting to make in the first place. So this final insult that we're going to send 30% of it to the landfill or burn it, that hurts. So we use fuel and impact the environment, transporting it all over the place. 
So the model is, let's take the methodology used for almost everything else. Almost all consumer items are made in what's called one-piece flow or lean manufacturing or just-in-time. It, it has made sense for over 60 years. And um, Toyota is credited with really introducing it to the automotive world, but it's spread to every industry. By my estimation, it's just furniture and apparel that missed it, at least here in the U.S. And it's no coincidence that furniture and apparel moved offshore in the late 70s and early 80s. And here in the South, um, it decimated uh, employment. And, and we still see the lingering effects of that today. Old Ford itself used to be a furniture making and textile um, hub uh, one of many in North Carolina. And when we moved here in 2019, there was one, um, there's one manufacturing plant left and it's not making either. It's making automotive parts. So the last furniture operation shut down two months before we got here. So it's that, that movement of furniture and apparel offshore allowed them to sidestep this lean manufacturing revolution that has touched every other industry. And the reason, sadly, is because there can be abusive labor practices in other countries. So the expert sewers in Vietnam, for example, make about three bucks an hour. And we're paying our sewers between 17 and 20 bucks an hour. And we plan on increases on a regular basis more than once a year into the future. So where exactly is all that money going if the sewers only get paid three bucks an hour? Well, about half of it is inefficiency because they're sewing in a bulk manufacturing mode. So I want you to picture um, uh, seated people at sewing machines and sewer number one, inevitably a female of a certain age, is making left sleeves. She might be sewing left sleeves on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And on Thursday, she gets to switch to right sleeves. And the person next to her is already sewing collars. And the person next to her is sewing cuffs. Somebody's assembling these, all these pieces later on. That is the way cars were made. That is the way everything was made 60 years ago. And depending on the industry, it's transitioned to one piece flow since then. So the founder of Kitzbow, Xander Nossler, knew this and had already deployed one piece flow in his previous startup, which made coffee machines. And so he had a dream of implementing one piece flow at Kitzbow. And when I showed up in um, very late 2017, early 2018, he had a small operation in California, Northern California, with three sewers. And those three sewers were making about 10%. Uh, and by the end of 2018, 15% of the revenue at Kitspo. So it was, it was an experiment. And as I was confronted as the new CEO with the prospect of ordering more clothes from Vietnam and started to grasp the enormous difficulty of choosing colors. Well, look, if you know me, you don't want me choosing your colors, not your paint colors, not your clothes. And I asked him, you know, well, who chooses the colors? And he says, well, we get a color consultant, but ultimately you do because you got to sell them. Oh boy. So this is an old dilemma that buyers in retail have faced for many, many years. What to buy, what to order, what colors, what sizes. And with bulk, it means we're going to use styles that, are, that use stretchy fabric so we can have only five sizes, so we can minimize how much we, we order. And we're going to minimize how many colors we have. And we're going to be conservative about our color choice. And I'm like, oh, so this explains why all the backpacking tents in the 70s and 80s were green, right? One color. Um, we, take, we take these color choices you know, for granted today. But all of these things are marketing decisions that are implementing on the manufacturing floor. And at the end of the day, it's actually not about profit margin as much as it is about cash flow. What will sell quickly? And uh, we took a look at what was happening in the back room. We ran the numbers. Even though the numbers were tiny, you could see the promise of the cash flow. If we if we order overseas, we got to send 50% of the money overseas 12 months in advance, and then we got to pay the balance before they put it on the boat. When we make it ourselves, one piece flow, we only have to buy the raw material. 
somewhere between 10 and 40% of the total cost of the garment. So we got to buy that in advance. And if we follow the Toyota principles, we don't buy enough for the whole year. We only buy enough fabric for the next six weeks. And then we make what is ordered. And then we deliver it. And in that way, we should never have to make something that goes to the landfill. And in that way, our upfront costs are a fraction, somewhere between 5 and 25% down instead of 50% down. And that basically captivated me. I saw an opportunity. I learned that American Giant was also doing this already. There's a few other specialty manufacturers outside of outdoor recreation um, in the industry in the United States that are using one-piece flow. We talked to as many of those as we could. I went back to the board and the current shareholders and said, A, we need to move. San Francisco is a ridiculous place to have manufacturing. B, you're going to have to find somebody else to send money to Vietnam because I'm not doing it. And C, um, this one-piece flow that Xander has already prototyped and proven, it works. Let's rock and roll. It was unanimous and an easy decision. So off we went to choose a place. Ultimately, we chose Old Fort, North Carolina. And we announced, announced this in August of 2019. And we had first day of work for our first people in Old Fort on October 1st. And we immediately started teaching them to sew. The issue is in 1975, 80% of the clothes sold in the United States were made in the United States. And in 2019, approximately 2% of the clothes sold in the United States were made in the United States. And during that time period, in all those decades, the talent has either retired or passed on, literally. So there's no one left to sew. In fact, we had a problem finding people who could fix the sewing machines. We need sewing machine technicians. Pattern makers, we've now had two pattern makers retire of old age while working at Kitspo. We're now looking for our third. There is no ecosystem because there's no industry. So when people ask us, when are you going to source your fabric in America? I usually say, well, we've had the good fortune to find a couple of mills and you you will see um, U.S. fabrics increasingly in Kitspo Apparel, but it's going to be years because there's no industry here. It doesn't make any sense to mill the fabric in the U.S. and ship it to Vietnam. So the industry is just missing in action. It's just not here. So we've got to build it from scratch. And I will say we underestimated the enormity of that task. Yeah, I can't imagine that that's an easy thing. And like you said, especially revitalizing an industry that hasn't existed in the US in any substantial way for decades. Like you said, there's just you don't have the workforce who knows how to do all of the things that you need to do. And so this is part of what I find so fascinating about this story. And I, I spent a decade working as a mechanical engineer and, and production engineer in various few different things before I had a substantial career pivot and started writing about bikes on the internet. So I, you know, I've got some familiarity with this stuff and it, I guess I have a lot of questions just about, well, one. So when Xander first decided that he wanted to take on this experiment of going for the just Toyota method, vertical manufacturing of apparel was the idea there that he wanted was like was the end goal to bring manufacturing back to the US and that seemed like the way forward to make that happen or was his thinking more along the lines of it just seems like a more efficient way to make apparel that the rest of the industry has kind of not gotten on board with yet and we want to see if the manufacturing part works and we'll figure out where it happens after that well it's dangerous for me to um uh, to speak for Xander, but we have worked together now for years. And I, I would say that, you know, Xander is, um, Xander's a product designer by profession. And uh, without putting words in his mouth, I, I think he was offended by the inefficiencies just at an aesthetic level. This is nuts. Completely. Um, I was offended by the cash flow, right? Because I'm a capitalist. So uh, that combination held us in, in, in resolve to make a difference. Um, I think, well, I know he had a vision for the clothes and he wanted to execute as, as efficiently as we can for survival, 
right? The, the cash flow had been an issue from the very beginning. This sending money offshore a year in advance that it just doesn't really add up. Um, you know, having lived this now for four years, I can tell you most American brands, if not all, are essentially marketing operations with a bank. I mean, there's some logistics to ship it out however it's going to go, whether it's going to go to brick and mortar retail or an online uh, direct-to-consumer brand. Really, fundamentally, the key skills in those companies and those brands are the ability to promote the brand and establish a rapport with customers and the ability to fund the offshore manufacturing. And if you can fund the offshore manufacturing uh, with less friction than the other guy, you're probably going to win because, and that's what the pandemic stopped cold. So, you know, Kispo customers didn't get their clothes any faster than the other brands because during this supply chain disruption, which has only affected us on fabric maybe twice, um, we can't hire sewers and train them fast enough. So long shipping times from Kitspo, not from the supply chain, but because of the labor force issue. The good news is we can fix the labor force issue. The supply chains, that's just a given. I'm not, I'm not sure how you fix that. Um, it'll be interesting to see whether this latest COVID disruption in China has an effect on supply chains this summer. I, I think it will. I assume it will. Probably. Yeah. Seems that way. I would say that, you know, in Petaluma in spring of 2019, when we're making this decision with the board and, and the shareholders, we we did not, I don't recall anything where we said we're going to change the world. <laughs> I don't recall saying we're going to change an industry. What I recall saying is the only way to survive is to make it ourselves. Today, we are absolutely changing the industry and we're not ashamed to say we're trying to change the world. And the reason for that is um, both altruistic, we are now a public benefit corporation, and we'll talk more about that in a moment, but it's also just pure capitalism, right? We will have better access to thread, fabric, sewers, pattern makers, sewing machine technicians when there's an apparel industry back in the United States. A rising tide will lift all of our boats. So right now, if you want to know how to use our compostable packaging, because we use it in our consumer packaging and all of our shipping, you could be our closest, fiercest competitor and we'll give you the name of the salesperson who will sell you the compostable packaging. Because tiny little kids bow is not going to fix the earth, not by ourselves. Everyone needs to be using compostable packaging in our opinion. So we're happy to share those sources. And if you're a competitor and you want to see how One Piece Flow works instead of ordering from Vietnam for your gazillionth time, come on to Old Fort. We'll give you a tour. Some of the stuff we, you know, some of our, our marketing statistics, we might, we might uh, cover up with a piece of paper, but we'll show you everything we do in our factory. We're eager to do it because that means the price of sewing machines, the price of sewing machine technicians, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, will come down. And then may the best company, the best brand, the best product win. But in terms of the manufacturing, this is it. So the exciting news is now that we're in 27 months in, we have data on every single one of the 44 styles we make in Old Fort. And it is incredible, but unwittingly, we have run an A-B test. A, make it in Vietnam for years, for almost seven years for Kitsbo. B, make it in America. Same labor price. They pay three bucks an hour. We pay 20. So you can bring a stopwatch when you come tour at Kitsbo and you can do the math yourself. You can watch the stuff come off, off the floor and you can count how many people were involved and you can use our loaded, um, our loaded wage cost on the floor is 22 bucks, including 100% health insurance. And I can show you purchase orders from Vietnam from 2017 that show the same price for that garment in labor. And so where is that difference coming from then? Just efficiency? And I, I would have totally been unsurprised if you were saying that your total landed cost was similar or better. Just Oh, I'm not including shipping or punishment tariffs. Yeah. I know, I know. All right, exactly. That's this is what I'm getting at. Is that like that would have been completely unsurprising to me because once you add in all of the inefficiency of shipping and all the rest. But 
Well, you sound like Xander. Yeah. I was like, I told the board it's going to cost us 25% more, but I think we can justify that with higher prices and, and branded made in USA. Yeah. So it was not the company's intention at founding to be made in USA. That was never imagined as part of the brand. Um, but it is today. It's actually made in Old Fort. We emphasize that. Um, we will we will undoubtedly have to build more plants in other places in the United States um, over over the next ten years. We've already bought the building across the street to expand into um, here in Old Fort. But fundamentally, that cost structure is because of one piece flow. And I am not a manufacturing expert and. And everyone I talk to who has a background in one-piece flow says that first jump from bulk to one-piece flow, you can, you can assume labor costs will go in half. And so that apparently is a rule of thumb in the business. Again, I'm not qualified to give anybody advice on how to set up their factory um, because I'm not an engineer. But I think the other component is I think those Vietnam factory owners and factory owners everywhere are taking a pretty good profit. And they can, right? The Vietnam is the is the best case. Bangladesh is not three bucks a it's not three bucks an hour in Bangladesh. So, um, I think it's just that simple. I mean, there's a middleman called the factory owner, and there is the inefficiency of bulk. I don't think it's going to be too much longer before offshore operations take a good hard look at one piece flow. And if you, if you get on Google image search and you search overseas cut and sew operations, you will see a ratio of one person per machine. And kind of like a truck fleet only makes money when it's on the road. You don't want a parking lot full of trucks. When you see a picture or you visit Kitspo, you're going to see a ratio of about five machines per sewer. And that's because they're going to move between the five machines. They're going to sew on one machine and then the next and then the next and then go back to the first. Everyone's using that in one piece flow. And we'll buy another machine for a specific purpose in a heartbeat. Because these sewing machines only cost between five dollars and $15,000. And they last 15 to 20 years. So it's a capital improvement. And if it shaves $0.50 cents off the labor of making it, then it pencils out. The ROI is obvious. So... It's, it's really a reversal of thinking. We're honoring the artisan and the machines are in service to the artisan rather than the other way around. Now, that turns out to have all kinds of derivative benefits. For starters, the person doing the sewing can say, I think we should buy a sixth machine and put it right here to do this. And if it pencils out, we'll do that. Like, it isn't David going up there saying, uh, I think we should get a sixth machine. Like, I barely know what the machines do, Right. It has to be the people who use the equipment, which, as you probably know, is a fundamental tenet of lean manufacturing. So the ideas come from the people with their hands on the equipment. But there are other, there are other advantages. It means that we have flexibility so that when we launch a new project, product now, we ask ourselves, how many different sizes could we make? So we just offered our first tight, a merino tight for athletic activities for women, and at, at launch, it comes in two lengths. And we might add a third if there's demand because we're not going to make 300 of each one. We're going to make them when they get ordered. So that flexibility in the product actually means the consumer wins. So now the consumer gets exactly what they want. You can get a 4XL Tech Tee from Kitspo today in less than a week in any color you want because we only made three or four of them, took pictures, and then paused. We're only going to make it when you order it. You want it in bright orange. By the way, no one's ordered 4XL in bright orange. If you want it in bright orange, you can order it in bright orange. If you want it in black, maybe maybe better on a bigger person. Sure, we got that too. I think, I don't even know how many colors we have, seven or eight colors for tech tees. So, that is customer choice that you never see from a small brand like us. You don't see that from a medium-sized brand. Actually, I would challenge some of the large brands, do they have those sizes? And we're going to add more sizes because we can. Because you're going to make each one in flow. It's awesome. Yeah, there's a lot to be said for that. And 
like you said, the benefits to the customer are pretty obvious. Just having options and the ability to get what you actually want and without the brand having to order a million of them to, you know, like once you sort of scale it out over the whole size range and it's just. Which inevitably leads to discounts and then the landfill and that whole mess. Right. And that 30% straight to the landfill statistic just continues to blow my mind. Uh, And you can Google it. It's the New York Times, Wall Street Journal. I mean, it's not us. It's not our number. Right. No, I I know. I've, I've seen it. It's crazy. Printed a few different places, but it's just, it's, it's horrifying. And it is horrifying. Anything that you guys are doing to put a little dent in that, I think is awesome. So, but to circle back to the move to Old Fort, you're in Petaluma, you're kind of looking around at the lack of a labor force there and just how expensive it is to be there and deciding that, okay, well, if we're going to do this US manufacturing, we need to move somewhere else. How did you end up in Old Fort? What was the decision like to how did you go about that search and what brought you to Old Fort specifically? Well, I confuse a lot of people because they're like, oh, you're from California. You brought Kitspo here. And I'm like, yes, I brought Kitspo here. No, I'm not from California. Oh, well, actually, no, I lived in California as a kid. No, what happened was I was already living here um, for over 10 years, um, very near Old Fort. And it was a sudden life change for me in 2009. And I got to really know Appalachia. And, and I had visited, but I live here. My wife was born um, nearby the Blue Ridge Parkway, just over the border in Virginia. And uh, I have another life as a first responder. So I joined the local fire department and you can't get much more local than the local fire department. So I worked with those guys for 10 years. So when it came time to find a workforce, I knew it it really needed to be Appalachia. Um, Appalachia is a place of beauty and you really can't be from here and still here unless you're resilient. It is tough. Um, There have not been great jobs. Uh, There have been a lot of trials and tribulations. So if you are still here and you haven't moved away, you're not going to go anywhere. So that meant we had a work ethic that we could tap and we could invest in people because we knew we'd have to teach them to sew. So if we're going to teach them to sew, that's going to be on our dime. We don't want them to move away. The antithesis of that really is Silicon Valley, if you think about it, or the Northern Bay Area. Oh my gosh, people hop companies like at lunch. And we wanted the opposite of that. Um, We also considered the lower Ohio Valley and the Tennessee Valley. Uh, We briefly considered South Carolina, but frankly, they've been through their industrial revolution and the wages are high and the employment is very low. Uh, BMW built the largest automotive plant in the world using lean manufacturing, of course, uh, in Greenville. And I think the statistic is 75 suppliers have co-located, something crazy like that. So um, we ruled out South Carolina. We considered Virginia. And in fact, Virginia was likely to be the place um, until about eight weeks to go. And uh, Old Fort uh, came up on our radar during our site visits. And the economic development director said, would you consider Old Fort? And I said, no, because Old Fort was near my house and I'd I'd ridden my bike through Old Fort, I don't know, two or 300 times over a decade. And it was dead and declining and depressed because it's dry. So the issue with dry towns anywhere in the United States, but particularly in the South, is they don't attract any tourists. And if they don't attract any tourists, then there's no restaurants. If there's no restaurants, there's no hotels. If there's no restaurants and no hotels, it's declining. It's pretty much binary black and white. So it turned out there was going to be a change in the state law that would allow a brewery. And I said, really? And they said, yeah, not exactly in the same building, but you would share a loading dock. And I went to look at the space and I was like, we're in, right? I mean, beer, bikes, sewing. It's a formal apparel factory itself. Um, it's, we can walk in five minutes to the U S national forest Pisgah. Uh, you can be at one of four trailheads, two miles from our front door. So quality of life for our employees, which we've always been committed to, but that was very exciting. And 18 minutes reverse commute to Asheville, our young leadership team for the most part in their thirties living in Asheville, um, yeah, it's 
it was it was a beautiful Goldilocks vacate uh, location because we've got Asheville to the west, 18 minutes away, and we've got a workforce for furniture and textiles, or at least the descendants for I don't know the next 45 minutes east, roughly 10,000 people um, of employable age. So sweet setup in Old Fort. We jumped into Old Fort, realized that the town was going to explode because of the accessibility of the trails. Uh, there were some whispers of trail development that we were already part of, my wife and I. Um, but it really took off when we landed. And we landed with uh, Hillman Beer, who built the brewery. And we, did, we opened our doors before they did, but we both pretty much signed our lease the same day. And since then, there's been six more businesses, and there's f- at least four more that I know that are coming. And so it's on. We're taking off. And that, again, part, partly altruism and mostly capitalism, we want to make the town a great place to work. Like we want people to be excited about driving from Asheville to Old Fort for their job. So we're investing in the community. It only makes good business sense. Now, Kitspo's not profitable yet. So it's kind of crazy talk. But we're invested in the community, both literally and figuratively, because we want to be in a great place. And uh, it warms my heart that just before we got on the phone, I was outside in front of the building where we have a retail cafe and bike shop and uh, apparel. And there were roughly 25 cyclists from one of the local road cycling clubs stopping in for a snack. So that just couldn't have happened because this was a food desert until we opened that cafe um, during the pandemic. Yeah, this is one of the other things I really wanted to touch on here is that I don't know the area well, admittedly, but the impression I had was just that Old Fort was really kind of well, one, a very small town. How many people actually live in Old Fort itself? It's 900 people on the census, about 450 voters, 30 years of decline, one employer left. Yeah. I mean, this story is all over America. Oh, for sure. There are, right. It's certainly not a unique story, but one that on, on one hand, it seems like a little bit of a surprising place to move. On the other hand, for the reasons that you've just laid out, it makes perfect sense, right? You've got this you're not moving into somewhere that is necessarily uh, doing especially well prior to your arrival, but that in a way presents an opportunity to pick it up and turn it into something. And like you said earlier, kind of another rising tide lifts all boats sort of situation where you have this, this opportunity to revitalize a place and it sure sounds like that's working, which is amazing. Well, one of the things we're trying to do is we're trying to do it right. So those of us who are involved in the Old Fort um, rebirth who have traveled, we've seen what happens when it isn't done right. We've seen what happens when the school teachers, the firefighters, the service workers can't afford to live in the town where they work. And so we are absolutely committed to doing it as right as we can. We know we're going to have to make compromises. We know that we will fall short of an ideal, but we can at least try because it is literally a blank slate. There is not, the only full-time employees collect the trash. Um, There's a small police department and a small fire department. I think the fire department has one man on duty during the day. Um, There's uh, relatively little code enforcement because there's no code enforcement officer. So it, it, you know, on the one hand, there's weeds in the sidewalk because there's no one to do that maintenance. On the other hand, um, we can construct the zoning and the sidewalk design the way we want it. No one's upgraded the sidewalks in 40 years. They completely skipped ADA. So we can do it right. We can install um, traffic calming streets where it makes sense to do that. So there are many of us who are very excited. And we're, we're tempering that excitement with with making sure that the existing community leads the change because you can't come in from the outside and say, yeah, I've been to Breckenridge. I know how we need, how we need to do this. It's gotta be more like, let me take you to Breckenridge or at least show you some photos 
here's where it worked out great there. Here's where there's a problem. And over here, that thing costs a million dollars, so nobody can afford to live here anymore. So we can work on that stuff. And high on our list, we're working on it right now, is affordable housing. And right behind that is child care and elder care. Um, it's a food desert, which is one of the reasons why we have our own cafe. It's a food desert 10 miles in any direction. It's also a bike shop desert. You couldn't get an inner tube before we opened our shop for 10 miles in any direction. Um, there's now a gym. There's a CrossFit gym here. And there's a lot of people here who are interested in their health but can't really afford the time in their day to drive 10 miles to use a gym. So all of these things, you know, uh, it's in moderation and has to be led by the local folks who you know, have lived here for generations. Um, but hopefully we can inject some enthusiasm, funding. Um, and, and Kitspo in particular has this, has this something that, that really none of the other businesses have here, which is right now we have 67,000 customers. And about half of them get an email from us every other day. If you're on our email list and you're listening right now, you know what I'm talking about. By the way, we keep sending that many emails because it works. People don't unsubscribe. They don't always open, but they don't unsubscribe. So we've got this megaphone where we can talk about the trails in Old Fort. In fact, at the bottom of every email you get from Kitspo, it talks about Old Fort. So I think it's fair to say with a population of 900 and a way stop with a gas station on the way to Asheville for everyone who lives in Charlotte and Raleigh and everywhere else in the world, I'm pretty sure there's 30,000 people in the United States who know about Old Fort now who didn't know about Old Fort two years ago. And that's our role. And we can use that megaphone responsibly to talk about change, to talk about improvements, to talk about building trails, um, basically as fast as we learn about them. Like we don't know everything. We're, we're getting taught every day. And, but we can distribute that information. Yeah. It's quite a cool just whole story of – Well, it's circular logic, right? If we treat the town with respect – then the town can help us. If we treat our employees with respect, then the employees can make great products. And if the employees can live in the town because we've created housing or childcare that steps away, then that's good for us. So again, yes, it's altruistic, but it's also, it's just classic capitalism. What's good for the town is good for Kitsbo. Yeah. I think there's just been this real notion in a lot of industries of just sort of the interchangeability and disposability of workers basically and taking a second look at that and thinking you know this has maybe become conventional wisdom some places but it doesn't have to be like that is amazing well i'll share with you i i had a disagreement in fact it's an ongoing discussion um it's a gentleman's disagreement as they used to say it's a it's a non-profit um here in Western North Carolina, that's very friendly with Kitsbo for a lot of great reasons, personally and professionally. And they did a deal with a brand that imports, excuse me, cheap shit from China. And I said, I think you should do a deal with us and not do that Chinese stuff. And they said, Dave, I know, but you know, not everyone's got the money for Kitsbo. And that's where the first chapter of the disagreement ended. And I got to tell you, I think about that all the time as I ride my bike. And the second chapter is going to go something like this. Yeah, really? You want to employ people in China who you will never meet to make stuff. Meanwhile, you can stop by here, have one of our fantastic coffees in the Old Fort Ride House, and at lunchtime, meet the person who's making the clothes, which by the way, are not that much more expensive. I recently looked at our bib shorts compared to two other brands that everyone listening to this podcast knows well. And those brands, their bib shorts are more expensive. And one brand makes them in Italy and the other brand makes them in China. And we're making them in Old Fort. So chapter two is going to be, dude, I think that I think that if you cannot afford Kitsbo, then I don't think you should wear the other cheap brand. And I think you should save your money. And when you buy the Kitsbo, by the way, it's going to last at least twice, if not four times longer than the cheap stuff, which is going to turn out that the Kitsbo on a per use basis is going to be less expensive than the Chinese stuff that it's, you know, 
we're only 20 or 30% more expensive than them. And ours is going to last twice as long. So do the math. And did you think about your neighbors before you made that decision? I do every time I buy food. If I can buy my food locally procured, I don't even look at the price tag. Now, I have privilege to be able to make that kind of decision. But at the end, you know, if an apple that's local here in North Carolina costs a dollar and an apple that comes from Peru costs 35 cents, supposedly, to me, I, I can spare that difference in price for apples. Not everyone can. I respect that. Absolutely. But that's, I'm using the power of my purse. And that's the discussion that, um, that we all need to have. I don't think it's just about clothes. Yep. Right there with you. And so that kind of brings us to one of the other things that you touched on very briefly earlier here, but tell us about this recent purchase as a public benefit corporation, because you just announced that a couple of months ago. In late October, uh, the existing shareholders made an offer that we basically couldn't refuse. They said, um, we will sell the company to you at a fantastic price. And you don't even have to pay us now. You can pay us later. The only catch is it's got to close by New Year's. So in six weeks, Kitspo uh, employees bought the company with the help of some local investors, local and a, a few non-local investors who are, who are loyal to the brand. The cash investors, we required them to either be connected with the brand or connected to Old Fort. And so we have new cash investors and we have employee investors and we bought the entire company. And now we are uh, in a completely new corporate structure called a public benefit corporation. And that's a mouthful. You probably know it best as a B Corp, where the B is an abbreviation for benefit. I should point out there's a trademark B Corp, and it's a kind of accreditation and certification. It takes about a year or two to get, and we don't have that yet. That's going to be a journey in and of itself. Um, we are applying for it. Uh, we're confident that we'll get there, but we're not there yet. But this category of benefit corporation is available, I think, in roughly half the states in the United States. Um, and in, where we're incorporated in Delaware, it's called a public benefit corporation. You'll see that a lot. In the way that you, you see companies are called Acme Inc., you'll see Acme PBC. And it means simply that for tax purposes, you're a C-Corp, a conventional corporation. But for legal purposes, you can have other objectives than profit for your shareholders. See, technically, every C-Corp in the United States must put shareholder value first. And that's what leads to baristas being underpaid and public companies fighting with the government not to clean up their oil spill because they can say we're supposed to put the shareholder's interests first, certainly in front of the public. A public benefit corporation turns that around and we can put whatever we choose to put in our bylaws and charter at equal setting with profitability for our shareholders. So it made sense if we're going to be owned by our employees and a handful of like-minded investors, it made sense to be a benefit corporation. So we have chosen to place our employees and the Old Fort community, and we were careful to find community by a value, not a geography, and the environment as equal to shareholder profitability. So going forward, that is our purpose, which is a long ways from Xander's original vision of just having awesome clothes that look great and lasted for a long time. And I, I should say that, you know, this is another form of privilege in the sense that we were able to negotiate such an affordable deal. Nobody's getting wealthy not anytime soon, but over time we can create generational wealth for the employees. So instead of them working for the benefit of the owners, they are the owners. And I'm surprised by how quickly that notion is spreading in the United States right now. Um, I shouldn't be surprised given the great resignation. Um, I shouldn't be surprised given the reset that the pandemic has provided. 
Um, but I am surprised. There are, the employee ownership is on the rise in many, many places, in many industries, and uh, we're just we're just a tiny, tiny part of that. Um, the the commitment to those other values really comes on the back of a great brand. I mean, when I showed up, Kitspo already had a sterling reputation and hundreds of positive reviews in all kinds of publications and users and podcasts and, and video logs. Um, and the clothes truly are great. I mean, they're awesome. Any you talk to any Kitspo owner, they've been wearing their stuff as long as four years before they need to repair or replace it. Um, so we had the benefit of a great brand. We had the benefit of that insight to make things lean manufacturing, um, and one piece flow. And now that we're doing it, uh, we can spread our wings a bit. Yeah. It just feels like you're kind of right on trend with a whole bunch of things that have happened largely organically, probably in huge part driven by the pandemic, the bringing manufacturing back to working domestically and these changes to employee ownership and all the rest are just sort of feels like the tip of the spear on a whole lot of this happening on a much bigger scale. And it's cool to see. And we're excited to spread the word in particular about our labor costs. Now it does require a capital investment in sewing machines. Remember that ratio of five to one instead of one to one, but sewing machines, these aren't robots. These aren't half million dollar robots and the people operating them are not robot operators. They are artisans. So it's a career. It's not a job. Um, you know, when I give a tour, I like to point out the fact that if you make the icon shirt and you're at the top of, of the skill tier of sewers, you've memorized 90 steps and you use 45 sewing machines. And that is an intellectual tour de force. In addition, you apparently have three hands to move that fabric through the machine at full speed, which is 5,600 RPM. So you know, it's not just a physical job. It's an intellectual um, career. And as I like to say, the, uh, the reward for the pie eating contest is more pie. So once you're really good with the icon, then you move to pants. And it's a whole new set. It's different fabric. And the machines are slightly different. And the construction techniques can be quite different. There's no belt loops on a shirt. So yeah, it's, it's, yeah, we're changing things. And there's no reason why the South and other rural locations in the United States can be transformed into apparel manufacturing operations, making clothes that are durable, last long enough that you really get the utility out of them and look good. There's no reason. Yeah. Here's to hoping we see a whole lot more of it and have certainly been impressed with the handful of Kitspo pieces I've been able to get on over the years. And, uh, oh, you got to check out the Haskell pants. Would love to. Have not gotten into that one yet, but they're they're seriously durable. But they look good. I mean, they don't look quite as fussy as a pair of slacks, but you know, they don't look like uh, well, they don't look like cargo pants or climbing pants. They're more classy than that, and they're awesome on the bike. Very curious to check them out. We'll see if we can make that happen. Well, David, this has been awesome and a ton of great stuff in here. Thanks for taking the time to do it. But before we let you go, we do like to wrap with one final question. The show is called Bikes and Big Ideas, after all. So. Granted, this has been a lot of big ideas from you already, but do you have one more for us? And it can be anything at all, serious or silly. Just what thoughts been rattling around in your head that you want to put out into the world? I think we should have a chamois pad replacement program. Oh. I can't get anybody else on board, but you know, we wear out our chamois pads, male and female, and like like I just I just had to retire a pair of bibs because the chamois pads trash, not not the bibs. I don't know if that's a big idea, but it's my current obsession. Fair enough. No, that's that that absolutely qualifies. That's an interesting one. Can see some logistical challenges to that, but you're right. <laughs> yeah, like touching them. <laughs> that was kind of the first one that popped into my head. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Exactly. Yep. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think you're right that that does often tend to be the first thing to go. So there might be something to that. Yep. Yeah. Some good food for thought and. Again, thanks for all of this. It's been a really cool conversation and we're very impressed with what you guys are up to and look forward to seeing how it goes for the rest of this. Just really following along for the ride and enjoying it. So thanks again. Well, thank you. But I'm I'm thanking you on behalf of the folks here because I don't actually do anything. I can't sew it. And 
don't sell it and I don't ship it. So I'm, I'm pure overhead, but um, there's a bunch of people here doing great work. Yeah. It's been good. Thanks again, David. Been a lot of fun. All right. Thank you. That's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. And if you're enjoying these conversations, then we'd really appreciate it if you take a minute to leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. Doing that helps us keep the show going and growing, and we'd really appreciate it. It'll help us keep bringing you these great conversations that you're enjoying and just keep the ball rolling on this whole deal. So please, it'll only take a minute. Help us out with that. I also want to say thanks to David for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we'll talk to you again real soon.